Hi there, this is Amy Oztan, co-host of the Parenting Bites podcast. We're off this week, so we wanted to replay one of our favorite episodes from back in 2015. Rebecca and I had a very special guest host, writer and entrepreneur, Jenny Baird. All of the links for this Encore episode will be up on ParentingBites.com, as well as on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash ParentingBites. You can also talk with us on Twitter using the hashtag ParentingBites. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. Welcome to Parenting Bites with Rebecca Levy. We talk about the intersection of parenting and technology. Everything you need to know about raising kids in the digital age. This is Parenting Bites. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Parenting Bites. I'm Rebecca, co-founder of KidsViews.com, and I'm here in the studio with my regular co-host, Amy Oztan of SelfishMom.com. Hello. Hi, Amy. And today in the studio, Andrea's not here. We have a special guest co-host, Jenny Baird, writer, consultant, entrepreneur. Um, Jenny's going to join us for the whole show. And topic two, I'm jumping ahead a little, is actually we're going to talk about Jenny's article in Medium, um, which is Campus Suicide, A Mother Responds, in response to a New York Times article, Suicide on Campus and the Pressure of Perfection. But our first topic today, we also have a guest. We have Jordan Shapiro of Forbes.com on the phone. And um, one of Jordan's articles caught us, I would say, caught our attention because it started flying around Facebook, as things do, um, that parents don't need to worry about screen time anymore, which is something we talk about on the show all the time. (laughs) So we have Jordan on the phone. Hi, Jordan. Jordan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I feel like if people went to Forbes.com and just looked up you, looked up Jordan Shapiro, and then looked at all of your columns, it's it's seriously almost what we talk about every week on this show, how parents are, you know, tackling tech, tackling raising this digital generation. Um, but from an awfully level-headed point of view, which I I think you don't see very much online. I think a lot of times what you see are, is the panic, the cyberbullying, the negative stuff, um, more about what the net is going to turn your kid into and less what parents and kids can do positively online or how parents can help their kids monitor themselves online. And this article in particular really talks about that, that parents seem to be acquiescing their power to the device itself rather than actively taking part in their child's online life or regulation of that life. Yeah, I think you said that. You said that really well. Um, that, I, that, I think that I think certainly we we tend to we tend to as parents spend too much time thinking about restriction um, and you know how do we control what they have or we or with new technology we let the technology do the restriction and that's really not our our job right. There's always bad things whether we're talking about technology or a pre-tech world. There's always things that you want you're, that you're worried about your children's exposure to. Um, but the only thing we really can do and should do as parents is to is to work with our kids to make sure they're prepared to to uh, to manage that exposure themselves. Right, that's our real job. And, and and if we and if we just restrict their access, then they never learn. Do you think parents freak out about this because they can't manage their own screen time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean that that certainly that certainly could be true. Um, I, you know, you know, I, I think I think um, there's. I mean, I don't want to say that blanket. There's certainly some parents who are also addicted to screens. Um, but, you know, I guess we're all addicted to screens these days, and, and I don't know that we should just decide that's a terrible thing. You know, that's only a terrible thing if it means we aren't also doing all the other things that are important in the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like, I, 
I, I, uh, I you know, we, we often go say, hey, we're checking our smartphones too much. But you know what? I do check my smartphone a lot. I also have really great dinner conversations at the same time. If one is replacing the other, I think it's a bad thing. If, if it's not, well, that's not, that's not such a bad thing. So one of the things you talk about is Amazon free time, which yeah. is, um, you know, which we've actually talked about. I think we've recommended it to people with really little kids um, <laughs> who really, honest, I, sometimes I think it's because parents um, may not be the one around. Sometimes it's a babysitter. Um, sometimes it's someone else. And so they feel like, okay, if I'm saying my kid can read endlessly on the Kindle, but they can only play games for an hour, I feel better knowing that, you know, grandma's watching him today. And so it's not going to be a full day of screen time. Um, but you say um, <laughs> that that really when you start to do it at the device level, you're sort of taking, you're not having the conversation, first of all, right? And you're really deciding that the device is going to tell your kid that and your kid's never learning for themselves how to regulate it. Yeah, I mean, this Amazon free time product, uh, the, 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 these controls, they, they irritated me from the very beginning. I mean, I didn't write about them until last week, but I think uh, it, they've been around for about a year and a half or something. Um, and they irritated me just seeing the commercials, and the commercials were on the Disney Channel. Um, and I would, I would my kids would be watching something on the Disney Channel, I'd be watching with them, and the commercial would come on, and the whole commercial's sales point was actually, uh, you know, you really don't have to parent. This device will do it for you, right, which drives me crazy, um, this 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 idea that um, that that we're not going to be next to them using it, right? The the worst thing about uh, about kids and technology. I well, let me back up a second. You you're it's not. It's not like technology. It's not like looking at a screen is poison, right? Nothing's going right. to happen to the kids. So, so whether whether they're with a babysitter or grandma, if they get a little more exposure, nothing's going to nothing bad is going to happen. If all they get is exposure, then we're not teaching them the right way to be adults. And when we take we put that in the hands of the device, then then there's no teaching going on anymore, um, right? There's just there's just limiting. Um, is that, is that making sense? Yes, and Jordan, this is Amy, and I agree with every, everything you're saying, and I actually don't use any of these control devices with my kids. We've we've tried very hard to let them figure out their own limits, and sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes after six hours when they started you know, turning into feral beasts in front of the video <laughs> games, we had to just physically take the controllers out of their hands and kick them outside. That's great um, parenting. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> so, too. Um, parenting. That's curious. <laughs> yeah, and, and as they've gotten older, I can see it kicking in where now they kind of, you know, blink a few times and look around and see that it's still daylight and, hey, maybe I'll go play soccer in the park with my friends. Um, but I do like the idea that I can send my kids upstairs at bedtime with a Kindle and all they can do is read on it because we always used to let them read before bed as long as they wanted. And then once they had Kindle fires, that became a problem. Uh, yeah, my daughters too. It became a problem. They started listening. They listened to all their music through YouTube, so it's very hard to just listen. Like when you're laying in bed, and then all of a sudden you're staring at the screen, and then you're flipping through the next music video, and then instead of going to bed, you're sort of in this loop of my next song, my next thing, and looking for it on yeah. a screen. And so my point is, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bath with the bathwater. I think that there are some good points to this technology. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. I think um, you know, in in my in my household, we don't we don't use the Kindle Fire. We have the the, the regular Kindles. So these are so that we we've never come up against this problem. So you know, the, those devices that you're able to do anything besides reading on are, are kind of not even allowed up the stairs at mm-hmm. bedtime. Because right. um, I really think you need to. You, you know, I, I'm a big believer in it should be at least an hour or two before bedtime that they shouldn't even see a screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm not counting an ebook as a screen. You have the same uh, issue when kids are bringing devices to school that you need to put the controls on because, you know, the mm-hmm. the device has a lot of power for what they need for school, but also um, I have definitely gotten notes home that my kid was playing Minecraft. <laughs> so that's a perfect segue, Jenny. Let's talk about Minecraft for a Wait, second. Wait, can I just comment on Jenny? I, yeah. the, I, I'm sorry. My response would have been to the teacher, why didn't you... Stop that. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's your job. Yeah, but don't you think, I mean, this is, I have I have definitely set up parental controls on the computer of my youngest, who is definitely has the addictive personality. He's Mr. I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. He, you know, and I needed that because I couldn't hear one more time, I am bored or, or have the fight. But he's a wily and clever, and he can find his way around those controls. And I think he's, you know, I, I used to always describe him as like the road runner. And the teacher was Wiley Coyote. You know, as much as she thought that she had him under control, he had some other trick up his sleeve <laughs> for her. I think it's, it's harder, you know, I, I think parenting those kind of kids is harder than just having the conversation about, you know, you shouldn't do it. And and I love, Jordan, in your article how you talk about, you know, we're trying as parents to instill those voices in our kids' heads that, you know, become their conscience, you know, is this okay? Is this okay? Some kids really take to that and some kids really don't give a damn. <laughs> well, but see, I think I think they do. Give yeah. a, they do give a damn. They don't actually change, but that doesn't mean the voice doesn't develop. Perhaps. Right? So so I think we often mistake the goal. The goal is adults. The goal is to create to, to, cre- to create the, the voices in them as adults. Just because they don't do the right thing now doesn't mean they didn't still hear. Yeah, it's a, it's a long game. And I found the same thing when we were trying to kind of, I hate the word train, but train our kids to do this stuff on their own. And while all of my friends were using marbles and timers and all sorts of schemes to regulate the screen time and we weren't, um, I really felt like we were we were on the fringes. Um, but now it's really paying off where my kids can hand over a phone or hand over a device and not freak out. And it's not a big deal. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're, you're getting the point, right? The question is, where's the motivation? If, what scares me is the idea is that if it's just a question of whether the device's faucet is open or closed, then they're, then they're, then, then, then they're always motivated to keep playing. They just can't. Yeah. Right? So how do we get them to make that decision themselves to want to do something else? By the way, my kids tell me they're bored all the time, and I say, good. A whole lot of life is boring. You need <laughs> <Yeah>. practice. <laughs> Go daydream. <laughs> right? Like, practice being bored. It's, one of, it's, one, it's a very key skill. I spend more than half my day bored. I know. Jordan, you sound like, um, I want to say, it's like the Jewish grandma view of parenting. It's like, guilt, good. <laughs> You're bored. Only boring people are bored. Like, these are all the things that my grandmother has sort of <laughs> repeated forever. Well, uh, but she was probably right, right? Like, she was a big 
uh, proponent of benign neglect. That was that's my grandmother's oh, favorite term. That's my entire parenting philosophy. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think also like when you think about the boredom issue, you know, when we you asked the question earlier about wh- about whether or not par- whether whether or not parents were addicted to screens. Mm-hmm. Well, part of the reasons parents are addicted to screens is because they don't know how to be bored when they're standing. Mm-hmm. I sit stand in line for the train, and I'm shocked that nobody can just stand there. Everyone has to be answering their email. Ah, uh, but see, that's a different thing. Like, I was just on a trip just yesterday where my I didn't bring the right cord for my phone, so I couldn't charge it. So I didn't have my phone for 24 hours. And I could stand in line and be fine. I wasn't complaining. It, it was it was okay. Right. But if I had the phone, what's wrong with being on it and occupying uh, my time? And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong, wrong with it. Just we, many people don't know how to be fine. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, you make so many great points in this article, Jordan, and one of the things that um, sort of most stuck with me was your observation that screens have become just like a basic utility of life the same way, you know, electricity or the car. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, th- this question is really about how do you teach your kids to use it responsibly and I guess yourself to use it responsibly right. too. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly it. And, and you know, while, while we're still not sure whether cars are good or bad, right? <laughs> right. We're no, lo- we're no longer worrying. You know, we, people actually did worry when cars came out about whether or not you should allow kids in cars because they might move too fast and cause brain damage. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and maybe they were right. Who knows? But, but, but the point is, you know, we do worry about making sure they, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to, still now talking to my kids about how you shouldn't, you know, you can't put the seatbelt behind your back, right? You have to actually sit in the right way in a car because that's part of, that's part of using it responsibly and safely. And when they're old enough to drive, I'm sure there will be a whole new lesson about what you can and can't do in a car. Right, like texting. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. exactly. Right. So it's all it's all, it is really very much about teaching responsible attitudes around technologies, not you know how much should you have it. You're not teaching anything responsible of it. How much if you're if you're going with this kind of abstinence or non-abstinence attitude. Um, and the worst thing that bothers me about these, this restrict that, that idea uh, is I think it grows out of the idea of, of screens as babysitter. Um, and what bothers me about screens as babysitter is not so much that you know that the kids are with screens all day. It's that the message the kids get are you need to keep yourself busy because you're a nuisance and a bother to me, right? And they internalize that message and they grow up thinking of themselves as being a nuisance. Right, and being need to be placated all the time. Yeah, right. It it tells them that they're that they're not important and, and, and valuable when when they're uh, when they when they live with with the, this attitude around around the screen. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think it has probably become a lifesaver for something like an airplane. Oh, yeah, um, okay, you know, yeah. Like there are times where your kid really couldn't sit still. Like no kid could, and you're like, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. Um, even waiting at the doctor's office, you know, whatever it is, where those times really were painful um, as a parent <laughs> with well, a the, kid. And by the way, you're, all your examples are times when we're also looking for ways to placate ourselves. Right. Right. I mean, on an airplane, I watch movies too. Yeah, yeah. I plug in. I keep pretending I'm going to do work, and I'm like, "Ooh, look at that movie!" <laughs> I, I have Casablanca. learned never to plan to do work on an airplane. Yeah, if you get it done it great. But <laughs> yeah. So let's touch on Minecraft just really quickly sure. before we wrap up, because I do think um, it is one of the biggest questions we get 
I mean, on the playground, it's a question I get all the time. My child is addicted to Minecraft, especially the parents whose kids just discovered it, Mm -hmm. Um, which is always interesting to see that next group of eight-year-old boys, Mm -hmm. more boys than girls, I will say. I get this question more from parents of boys, Um, and I'm not sure why that is, so that's probably a whole other interesting topic, but... um, yeah, Minecraft. I mean, it is. Uh, there's no way around it that it's addictive. I mean, it is. It is got the magic sauce. Um, what do you think? I mean, what do you think kids are? I don't know. I mean, we know what they're getting out of it. They're building. They're creating. They're taking ownership of what they're doing. They're playing with other kids. But you know, it's there's something else going on. I think because it's open ended, you can't win and stop. Like you're never done. <laughs> like Candy Crush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, the other thing, and I've written a whole lot about Minecraft. The other thing I think is uh, the, to realize is think about when you're when you're talking about something like Minecraft, you want to think about bigger than just the game and go, what's what's their entire experience in the world? And um, kids today just don't get the freedom outside the way that they that, that they used to. When I was a kid, we had full imaginary scenarios going on with our neighbors outside. My mm-hmm. kids don't have neighbors that they play with outside in the same way I did. Yeah. And so I think Minecraft has become this kind of um, virtual, uh, safe outdoor uh, imaginary play space. Oh, that's um, interesting and really sad. I was going to say, and sad at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, for some, I don't know whether it's good or bad that we've got that we've gotten so uh, overprotective. Um, you know, I've we can make the argument. I've heard people make the arguments the world actually is 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 just as safe and that it's not as safe. But either way, to me, uh, I'm more interested in, in at, at least uh, for for the sake of this conversation in in that phenomenon and in that and in that question, I think the real goal is for parents to get involved in helping kids find the way to get just as much fun imaginary play outside of Minecraft. Yes, I think I, that is key. I, I often I often say, you know, when that uh, one of the reasons the kids are so obsessed with Minecraft has very little to do with Minecraft and very and a whole lot to do with how boring we've made the real world for them, right? The, yes. The, 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 the way the way we often teach in, mo- in most of our schools now, um, you know, not because of the teachers, because of the standards and the testing, uh, um, is, ha- has made it so the world's not magical anymore. That's so sad. Um, and probably really true in terms of Minecraft, in terms of the power kids feel when they're in that world and playing. I mean, we, it was the same thing. I mean, I grew up near Prospect Park, so it was like, we were in there, we built forts. We, I don't, <laughs> can't even believe the crap we did in the park that my parents had, like, no idea we were in the park. Like, I just don't <laughs> even know where they were somewhere else. Um, that would never happen now. Um, That's right, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that depressing note, um, <laughs> but maybe we should be happy about Minecraft then. The kids are getting to express this in a different way, in a different place. And maybe that generation will grow up and be like, I want my kids outside building forts. And um, Well, we should be happy and we should also make sure that they learn. I mean, we should be happy. We, we should not be so angry at it. Right. Right. But we should realize what it's doing and then we should figure out ways to allow them to get the same thing in other ways in addition, not instead of. Right. It's right. Not, it's not Minecraft versus is the outdoors. It's how can we teach them to do it in outside too. Right, and not just sitting and playing with Legos because a lot of people think that's that's the physical thing you do that accompanies Minecraft, right? It's just build with Legos. But really, right. you're right. It's 
it's about this really immersive imaginary world experience, which is less about sitting at a table, also building Legos. And they don't have, like I had older kids who taught me how to do it. When you mm-hmm. don't have these kind of neighborhoods of kids and little neighborhood gangs happening, <laughs> nobody's teaching them. So get outside with your kids and play make-believe with them. Right. Teach them how to do it. <laughs> oh, God. Don't just imagine that you're born knowing how, knowing how to do that. Right. <laughs> right. That dress-up bot. Right. Kindergarten used to be a very different place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was great, and I'm sure we will um, have you on again because, as I said, every week I'm like, ooh, that's a good topic. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we talk feel, about that. feel free to reach out anytime. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. We will be right back with topic two, um, talking about suicide on campus and the pressure of perfection. And so it's a little heavier topic, but we'll be back with topic two. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Talking tech, apps, entertainment, and issues around parenting the digital generation. This is Parenting Bites with Rebecca Levy. Okay, we're back. We probably should have recorded our <laughs> our break <laughs> our break conversation. We should start to periscope that. Um, so we're back with topic two. There was an article in the New York Times on July 27th uh, titled Suicide on Campus and the Pressure of Perfection. And it was like the number one most emailed article for a long time, right? And it touched on what was going on at the University of Pennsylvania um, specifically about sort of this rash of campus suicide and then it related back to helicopter parenting and how that's causing it and we have kids who can't be resilient and they all think they need to be perfect and social media is somehow adding to this because they see everyone's perfect image projected on social media and then they think they're the only ones who aren't. Um, And Jenny Baird, who is joining us today, wrote a response um, on Medium Dot com called Campus Suicide, A Mother Responds. And Jenny spoke from a very personal place. I'm going to let you tell your story. Sure. Let me tell you mine. Um, and so I'm going to sure. take it from here. <laughs> um, I saw this article being shared on Facebook, and I first decided to ignore it because I myself was the mother of a campus suicide. My uh, stepson killed himself uh, during his sophomore year at Carnegie Mellon University, and he um, definitely fit the profile of kids um, uh, covered in this article of being very successful, popular, well-liked, and um, and his suicide certainly came as a shock, I think, as all suicides do. Um, when I read the article in depth, I actually found it incredibly frustrating um, and really inappropriate, um, both from a personal perspective and I think from a cultural perspective. Um, a lot of the sort of story of the main young woman featured in this article, I think we could all identify our kids, kids we know, you know, there's nothing that unusual in her story, you know, she goes to college, she thinks, you know, this college is a reach for her, everybody else seems to have it more together. I think we could probably all look at our lives and say, oh, I know that about my neighbor, my friend, whatever. I mean, we're all constantly sort of in that state. Um, But I think the question that people have is, you know, well, why do some people like that then kill themselves? And and I think that stories like this one in in the Times, 
create a kind of media frenzy and an unrealistic um, perspective on what happens within suicide, you know, with suicide. Um, certainly the focus on um, kids who lack resilience when they go to college because they've been supervised not just by helicopter parents, but by the term coined here, lawnmower parents who mow down every obstacle in their path. Um, I just, I feel like we've created this big bogeyman of helicopter parents. And if you're a helicopter parent, watch out, watch out, your kid might die. Right. <laughs> you know, it's one more thing to worry about. I had exactly the reaction when I read the Times article that you talk about in your response to it on medium.com, where I read it and I kind of had a little sigh of relief because I'm not that kind of parent. My kid, you know, it's not going to happen to my kid because I'm not a helicopter parent. Phew. Okay, let's move on to the next the next yeah. thing. Right. You know, when um, when my stepson died, I have to tell you that the idea of suicide never entered my consciousness. I know, you know, of all the things I worried about as a parent, right. you know, my kids staying out late and were they drinking, were they driving safely, you know, whatever, I never worried, oh, my kid is at a risk of suicide. Um, and I think that we're all looking for ways to feel safe, to feel that we're in control, that um, we've done a good job parenting, that we've raised our kids well. Uh, and certainly being able to point to, you know, a very exaggerated idea of helicopter parents and saying, well, I'm not like that, so I'm safe because I certainly don't think of myself as a helicopter parent. Um, but I think that does nobody a service and I don't want you to feel scared like, oh, no, my, you know, right. everybody is going to be killing themselves because I think that's another falsehood that this article perpetrates is that um, suicide is rampant everywhere you go on these elite colleges. Everyone is, you know, uh, a, a step away from suicide, which is is not the, the fact of the matter. Right. Either. You know, it's interesting because I remember when I was growing up, there were certain colleges that were known for that. Right. It was like Cornell. Right. Like everyone's like, oh, Cornell, like everyone jumps off the bridge. Right. Like you'd go tour and people would say things like so. I feel like there was always this, um, I don't know, like certain schools had that reputation. And part of it, I, it sounds horrible to say, is sometimes they were kind of proud of it. Like it was like so intense yeah, here. We're so hard we're that so kids jump off bridges. So crazy, right, we have to put a fence around the bridge and whatever. Um, I mean, I think it's been, I think one of the things you talk about, which is was really resonated with me, was this is such a vulnerable time in kids' lives. Like that's part of what this is really about, right? Especially the cam on the campus suicide. They're all, like on their own for the first time. doesn't matter if you're a helicopter parent. Like they're on their own for the first time they're sort of in these new social pressures for the first time they're finding their way they're finding their identity they're it's such a complicated time of life I, I think not just for kids at elite colleges no, but all. for all kids and mm -hmm. I, I really yeah. think especially for boys and the suicide rate among men and boys I think is uh, four times higher than it is among girls wow. and women um, but especially I think whether it's hormonal and 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 I mean just to state some facts 90% um, of suicides the person suffers from mental illness 10% we don't know what but I mean you don't kill yourself if you're in a mentally 
cogent state. It's right. it's not a rational. And these uh, are un- thing mostly to, undiagnosed. Un- there is a huge amount of undiagnosed mental illness. Um, but that age, I think, from 16 to early 20s, 24, you know, the shifts in the brain, shifts in life, the pressures from um, social pressures, academic pressures, pressures to sort of launch yourself as an adult, I think they are hard for everyone, whether you are at a competitive elite college or, you know, worse. And one of the things that we don't talk about is actually suicide is much uh, more prevalent among um populations with fewer resources. So the Times actually wrote a follow-up article in which the author even pointed out that actually white students, and especially white women at elite colleges, have one of the lowest rates hmm. of suicide in the country. And um, and I find this, you know, remarkable because the, the biggest suicide cluster in the past year in the States has been on an Indian reservation uh, in South Dakota. There were, they had 19 suicides wow. In six months. Oh my God! Um, huge, you know. And this is a community that suffers from—I hate to say—you know—poverty, alcoholism, um, child sexual abuse, neglect. You know, yeah, just got a historical embedding of every—you know—what right. it means to be on a reservation. Everything about it is just. It's so isolating. It's nothing's improved on reservation. Right. There, there's that sense of no way out. Yeah. Um, but you can see that. But that doesn't, right? That doesn't ricochet to the top of the New York Times most emails. Most emails, right. because what's it's not a good story? It's not a good story because it's not their readers' story, right? right. It becomes this other story. Right. Um, but when you, like, to your original point, when you can stoke that fear among elite, among you know, upper middle class white people who feel like, but I'm doing everything right, right um, because that's the fear, right? right? It's like I did everything right. How could this happen to me? I, I really have to say this fear mongering among parents. I think it's uh, you know epidemic. You know that we're all concerned. You know and, and have worry even when we're trying to be you know free range parents. Right. You know and and I did learn. Um, some things about myself where I always thought it was a very loosey-goosey parent and, you know, let my kids do their own thing. But um, in the aftermath of my stepson's suicide, you know, you started, you know, learning things about yourself and some of the things that you might think that you do to be helpful are not helpful. So when your kid comes home from school and they are unhappy about a bad grade or whatever it is, you know, some slight uh, in their social life, and you say, "Don't worry about it. You know, let it roll off your back. You know, this will this will be over tomorrow." It's actually not good parenting. I mean, maybe this is obvious to you guys, but to me, I was always trying to tell my kids to be positive, and this would they roll would with it. Roll with mm-hmm. it. You know, tomorrow this would be forgotten. And one of the things I learned is actually, as a parent, uh, it's very important to validate your kid's feeling and say, you know, that really does suck. Hmm. Because I think that one of the things that we don't think about when we're raising our kids is um, how are we teaching them? I think earlier we were talking about, you know, boredom is a big part of life, but so are all of those unhappy, uncomfortable feelings, the feelings of rejection, the feeling of disappointment, the feeling things that you know you're not supposed to feel because they're socially inappropriate, like jealousy and anger, you know, but... Didn't the article call it uh, 
pen face where the, it was like a known thing yes. at, at the University of Pennsylvania where the kids would just put on a mask you know everything was great everything was effortless right that's a continuation of right that. no one had to ever talk about how hard they worked right yeah. you had to be seem like you had it all you could do your sport yeah. you could do academics you, could, you had it all under control and I, I do think that that is stoked by social media but I think that starts from regular right. life and usually yeah, they yeah. say a lot of times like that actually that pressure a lot of times is more on girls right that like put on the happy face mm -hmm. you're perfect right. you're like you know you have to cheer everyone else up like mm -hmm. whatever that that is it's so scary to me because I think when your kid turns into a teenager right moodiness hormones like that is part of the package um, and no one wants to admit that their kid is that I mean sometimes there's kids you're just like they, right? You can see. Like, they are so <laughs> teenage. Like, they're going through it. Um, and either the parents, like, apologizing for them or no one will talk about the fact that their kid's also nasty to them. You know, whatever it is, everyone, uh, the parents do it to each other, too, where it's like, oh, no, it's great. It's great. She's doing great. She's great. Like, the parents get embarrassed if their kids don't seem, you know, to be, like, doing everything and enjoying everything. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the kids ingest a lot of that, too. Like, it's a different kind of parental pressure. Right. Um, to not, I don't know, to not put that on your, your parents somehow, to not burden them with it. Mm, that's interesting. But yes, you rarely hear people say, you know, my kid is an annoying nightmare. Right. <laughs> which is what which we is a, Which is a lot of teenageness. Right. I, um, I, I used to describe raising teenage boys because I, I have five kids and um, the oldest is 25, 20. Now, <laughs> um, wow! Um, but I used to say, you know, that at thirteen or so, thirteen, fourteen, the boys go into their little cocoon like the hungry caterpillar, and all they do is eat and grunt <laughs> and smell bad. And then, like around eighteen, nineteen, they emerge and they're a beautiful butterfly. And you're like, oh, who are you? Did you, did you live here? Um, but you know, there are those really difficult years. I think with girls, it starts younger, like maybe eleven those sort of really yeah. awful years start and with boys around 13 or 14 and and it's not always pleasant to to be with teenagers and that's just sort of part of the deal it is definitely part of the deal. Oh, that's, oh, I always say that's why they invented boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been in the news, too, so we won't go there. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, think, I think a positive thing to come out of this, I think it was the New York Times follow-up article that maybe mentioned that, that several of the kids who had killed themselves, they had been worried about what would happen if they could get readmitted to their college if they left oh, to get no. help. So one of the positive things is that, yeah, that colleges are, are now taking that into account, you know, that that you won't just have to leave if you need to, to get help. Yeah. I right. think um, what you're pointing to is there's such a stigma around mm -hmm. mental illness mm -hmm. that there just isn't around physical illness. Nobody yeah. would say, oh, you had to go to can for cancer treatment. Sorry, yeah, you, can't, sorry. you can't come back. Um, you know, and the article I wrote on Medium, I got so many comments from so many people who I've never met and never known. And um, one of the really um, one of the comments that stuck with me was somebody who said is there any other illness that it, your child could have that people blame you for oh right. right even if it was genetic they wouldn't blame you right yeah. right <laughs> yeah it that is, is so true it is so 
I, maybe because people fear it so much because it's still so complicated and so misunderstood. You know, you'll have people who will tell you every ADD drug their kid is on. They're happy to tell you they've tried six different drugs. And they're t- like that stuff somehow, if you can get a pill for it, yeah. they're all over it. Right. Um, but that idea, you're right. I guess because parents automatically take that on too, right? Well, Somehow parents do. feel it, like a failure. It's like alcoholism, yeah. right? Like you would, like people will still say, you know, well, they just don't have any self-control. You would never tell somebody to will away their cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. like this idea that you're, you're just not mentally strong enough. There's something wrong with you, which is so sad right. and not helpful at all. Yeah, that's like the whole conversation needs to change. I do think it is changing. I think what's interesting about, um, like the maybe it's an upside to all of this media attention, which is too focused on very specific things like elite schools and elite kids. But there do seem to be more voices because of social media actually emerging the other way. So people who tell their stories, kids who can tell their stories, kids who can feel like they can connect with other people, parents who can connect with each other. So, so I will say that um, I very rarely, I have very rarely talked about my stepson's suicide in public and I think you know uh, I've seen you at events and you and and, you know and it's not something that I go around shouting about I don't talk about it very much and there's other mental illness in my family and I've been very nervous to talk about it because I do feel that it brands me and my family in a way that's negative Um, but in writing this, and I've uh, also written a memoir about my experience, I mean, part of the goal there is, you know, this idea that you can't really change the culture if you're not willing to be part of the culture. So I think everybody who's willing to step up and tell their story, it takes a lot of courage. It's hard to do, I think, especially teenagers who are speaking out mm-hmm. um, and parents, too. Well, we thank you for joining us today and talking about it. And um, we will be right back with our Bites of the Week, which um, will be very light and fun. Not mine. No, not Amy's. Forget it. Amy's going last. All right. We'll be right back. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Talking tech, apps, entertainment, and issues around parenting the digital generation. This is Parenting Bites with Rebecca Levy. Okay, we are back with our Bites of the Week. And um, I was teasing Amy that she'd go last, but she always goes first. I think, Amy, you have to go first. Okay. Um, And I should preface this by saying I don't want it to be seen as any kind of part of the discussion that we just had. I chose this as my bite of the week before I knew that Jenny was coming on and and what we would be talking about. Um, So this is kind of a a similar subject, but different. Um, It's an article in The Atlantic that my friend Melanie recommended on Facebook called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's a long read, but... Okay, like eight people sent that to me today. (laughs) This is bizarre. Yeah, it's 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 a long read, but it's worth it. You have to read it to the end. And it's about this really kind of poisonous idea on college campuses that students don't want to talk or be presented with anything that is against what they believe in, that might trigger some kind of emotional response from something that happened in their past. Um, 
it mentions how uh, some very high-profile comedians refuse to play college campuses now because the kids can't take a joke. Um, it, it's a really interesting read, and it's it's a little bit scary because college is where you're supposed to go to learn how to think, and these kids don't want to think about things mm-hmm. that are outside of their current worldview. Mm-hmm. So I'll post a link to that in The Atlantic. Interesting. Wow. The difficult time to be a professor, I guess. Yeah. All right, Jenny, what's your bite? Okay. My bite is The Barter, which is a book by Siobhan Adcock. This book just came out in paperback last week. It's um, a ghost story. This is the kind of book I never read. <laughs> so, but but I know she was inspired by books like Stephen King. So this um, this book is really really great. And I am on a. I've been reading this year books by people I know, which has become a very difficult challenge. And I I do know Siobhan, and I picked up this book, and it was such a relief. It's a page turner. It's gripping. It's the story of a young mother in Austin, Texas. Uh, who's suddenly visited by a ghost. And um, the only thing spookier than the ghost story, which uh, there's the story of the ghost sort of interspersed. One chapter is the current day story, and one chapter is the story of the ghost 100 years ago, what her life was like as a young mother also. Mm. So the only thing spookier than the ghost story is um, the way that this young mother, the uh, hero, the hero of the story Bridget gets sucked into the whole mommy community and mommy <laughs> lifestyle in Austin suburbs. It's like a double horror it's story. It's like a double horror story. Alright well I need oh a new book God. I'm going to put that on my Kindle before we leave this Definitely studio. you know it, it, it's gripping and it's funny and it's um, spooky it's really really good book. Okay sold. Um, okay, so I'm going to do I'm going to do one more back to school um, bite, which is This American Life did a two part series on education, focusing on the one thing that has actually worked in all these years on raising test scores for minorities and closing the achievement gap, and no one will talk about it and no one will do it, and it's integration, hmm. huh. and it is. An incredible two-part series. The first part, they actually, they're in Ferguson. They go back to sort of the institutionalized um, integration of the school system there and between in St. Louis County in general and what happened when they tried to force integrate because the whole, a whole district was labeled failing, then those kids were able to opt into another district once mm-hmm. that happened. And so what happened in the white community when they said all these kids were going to come into their schools and integrate and like the re- I, I can't you will cry listening hmm. to the public hearings about the kids coming from one neighborhood to another and how these parents were talking about children I it's it's so upsetting and such a huge crazy level and the woman doing all the reporting had been the product of an integration um project in I think Florida and and you know firsthand experience the incredible results it is unbelievable that this is something that truly changes lives and it has completely you you can't it's fallen out of favor to such a degree that no one can even bring it mm-hmm. up 
And then the second part, they talk about um, a community that's actively trying to do it again. And by bringing white suburban kids into the city schools. Um, that was me. In Hartford, Connecticut. So trying to convince these parents that the, they have a big magnet grant. So they built all these new magnet schools that would be integrated and they have to have a certain threshold of integration. Mm-hmm. So the marketing campaign that's going on in the suburbs to get white mm-hmm. families to try these schools. But then all of the black families that are left behind in Hartford because then they can't all go to those schools. Mm. Like, it is so complicated and crazy. It might make you lose your faith in anything ever being done. But on the other hand, you're like, I can't believe this is something, and it's certainly not simple, but it really is an effective tool. And I don't know, maybe it'll start a conversation of people Hmm. saying, okay, we'll do this. And at the same time, Show Me a Hero started on HBO this weekend, which is about the housing integration in Yonkers in the late 80s. Written by someone we know, Lisa Belkin. Belkin, Based on her book. Um, So it's all intertwined, right? Like housing integration, education integration, but the education piece may be easier to do than the housing piece at this point. I don't know. But definitely listen to it. It's a two-part series. It'll give you a lot to think about. Look around your child's school and see what it looks like and think about what that means. You guys just planned Um, out my next two days between the book (laughs) and the podcast. I highly recommend podcasts are only an hour. Um, I'm always recommending other podcasts and they don't ever recommend us so we have to change that. (laughs) Um, All right, so thank you. Thank you Jenny for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks Amy as always. You're welcome. Um, You can check us out at facebook.com slash parentingbytes B-Y-T-E-S leave us comments um, show if you have something you want us to talk about please let us know. You can find us on Twitter by following the hashtag ParentingBytes. Of course, on iTunes, subscribe, rate us, review us. That's how iTunes pushes us up in the findings. Um, And of course, on Play.it, where you can find Parenting Bytes and all the CBS podcasts. Until next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs)